thanks for being here. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, the bulk of material is voluminous. I mean, there's whole courses taught on angelology, demonology, and those kinds of things. So, you know, and it's kind of, you know, at, at post-pizza, um, 6.30 at night kind of setting. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's not lightweight stuff. So what I've tried to do is at least pull some pieces out to try and at least hit the hit the highlights, so to speak, uh, because we could have just a very long conversation and, like I said, a whole course. Um, so just to set the stage, if you go to the Easter Vigil on Saturday night, you have your own vigil here, okay? So if you come to the Easter Vigil here on Saturday night, when the new Easter candle is blessed um, and it's lighted, this is the prayer that goes with it. It says, Christ, yesterday and today, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, all time belong to him and all the ages. To him be glory and power through every age, forever. Amen. And the reason I mention this, uh, for the simple fact today, okay, it's Wednesday, it's Wednesday of Holy Week, it's what they call Spy, Spy Wednesday, um, just based on the scripture that's used for today, because this is the day that Judas goes to, to make his deal. Um, with the authorities in that. But within this context, we're having this particular conversation tonight. And there's a tendency, whenever you talk about angels and demons, um, and or anything associated with it, similar topics, good and evil, seen and unseen phenomena, and all these kinds of things, of either falling into or setting up some kind of a dualistic approach to the world. You know, so there's this whole big scheme and there's one big kingdom against another big kingdom. Um, and it's problematic because at the end of the day, that's not our tradition. Um, and I say that for a couple of different reasons because, you know, when you divide all of this into kind of these two big equal and opposing forces where you've got, you know, angels, God, saints, all the good folks on one side, and you've got Satan, Lucifer, whatever names you want to sign and all the demons and all the wicked souls on the other side, it sets up a false duality because it gives you the appearance that, and you'll hear people say, well, it's just, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. It's not. That's not our tradition. Um, but it's so easy. You get into kind of that, and there's so much confusion that comes as a result of that. It's not two sides of the same coin. Um, and that it flies falsely um, into our, our Christian tradition. Jesus Christ has already claimed all of creation. That's what we're going to be celebrating on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. The victory has been won. You know, so it's not this great big, you know, in a sense, cosmic battle going on anymore. And again, you know, it, it, if, you, if you're not careful, like I said, you're always thinking, well, you know, Maybe this side will win. Well, maybe this side will win. That's not on the table anymore. Fact of the matter is that that has been accomplished. God has won the victory. And so, and we see that playing out. I mean, what a perfect time. I usually end up having to, or end up coming at, at, um, Halloween time or close to Halloween when Father Pat used to have me come because, of course, and then we talked just about the, the whole demonic aspect. But, you know, again, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's won the victory. That's our starting point. And as equally important is what we profess that there is one God. These go hand in hand. You know, there are not two gods. There's one God who created all things. Now, those spirits be it angelic or the soul, created with free will to choose, to accept God, to reject God. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it, there's only one God who is the source of all of that. Angelic beings, Satan, his minions, humankind itself, we all have a beginning that differentiates all of creation from the Creator. And so to keep those two uh, realities always in mind, 
there is only one God who created all things. This is our Catholic Christian tradition. And Jesus Christ is the Lord over that. Yes, there was the fall. There was Adam and Eve. There was the fall of the angels. Yes. But Jesus Christ is Lord of all of that. The forces of evil are still at play. You know, the old line that, uh, you know, the, 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 the war is over, but there are still battles going on. The struggles of life um, on this plane, this earthly plane, that's where our salvation, in a sense, yours and mine is played out. You know, we are living out our salvation here on earth, whether we accept or reject God, whether we follow or choose to do our own will. That's day to day, the choices we make, the way we live. And no doubt there are influences with all of that. So just to keep those two things in the back of your mind. So then going forward, spend the first block of time talking about the angels uh, and that created realm of angelic beings and then move into the fall because all of the demons once upon a time were angels. Uh, so there was, you know, not this God created good and God created evil. God cannot create evil. Uh, it's not part of his essence. Uh, he only creates the good. But all good is created. Uh, all beings, angelic or soul or souls with free choice. That's where the that's where the difficulty usually enters in. In general, talking about angels, um, if you take a look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you want to look at Numbers 328 to 336. In a nutshell, if you want the nuts and bolts of what are angels, what's the Catholic mind of the understanding of who the angelic beings are. Uh, angels, the word itself, it comes from a, a Hebrew word which means messenger. And for most of us, our understanding of angels more times than not from scripture from elsewhere, that's what they do, that's part of their role. But that's the most familiar, that's, if you will, the, the basic role of the angel is messenger. Um, to define a simple description of, you know, what is an angel, is pure spirit. An angel is not composed like us of two associated substances of spirit and flesh, but is just pure spirit. Uh, Gregory the Great makes a great line, he says, or stated a great line, he said, God is not made of him, angels that is, an inexplicable mixture of spirit and mud. But go back to creation, you know, the forming of, of humankind, of Adam and Eve and all, I mean, what did he do out of the, out of the dirt, out of the clay, uh, he fashioned and breathed into to create, you know, to create Adam, uh, the first man, and from there Eve. Um, an angel is a pure spiritual substance which admits no mixture of anything corporeal key thing to remember though is that it's created. We always have to differentiate because God is pure spirit too. But again, no beginning and angelic beings having a beginning. So the big picture, our tradition, there are three species of spirits. The divine, God Almighty, the angelic, and the human. In other words, when we talk about the soul. When we talk about angelic faculties, so in a sense, I want to focus just on two pieces. It gets a tad thick, um, so I'll do my best to, to do justice to it. But when we first talk about, I'm going to first talk about angelic intelligence and then angelic will. So the movement of the mind, the movement, if you will, uh, or for us anyway, the movement of the mind, the movement of the, of, of the will itself, of the person. So first, angelic intelligence. As a pure spirit, an angel has an intelligence that never sleeps. Remember, always go back to the fact this is pure spirit. It doesn't get tired. It doesn't The batteries don't run low on the Energizer Bunny. You know, it just keeps going. Um, not you know, doesn't have all the things that, you know, to rest, to need sleep, to need nourishment. Uh, it's pure spirit. Um, from the first moment of its existence, it produces an action that has not formed and yet is. 
instant being, instant intelligence, the will, because again, it's pure spirit. One instant is enough for an angel to gain knowledge, just as it only takes one glance, for instance, for you and I, we look into the distance, we're standing on the, you know, the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and we see the horizon. But again, those are instantaneous things for angelic beings. With this, this said though, it doesn't mean that angelic knowledge can't grow. It's called into existence when it was created, but there's also the possibility of it to grow. However, angelic knowledge is immune from error because it's the nature of the pure spirit to be able to see the reality of what it's looking at and to understand it to the core. It embraces all of its qualities. So it's not like we look at something and you say, okay, well, there's the plastic cup. It's got <coughs> lemonade, uh, but you know, might there be something else in there? Or, you know, I mean, there can be confusion, there can be doubt, we don't know it, or if you're looking at it for the first time. It's not so, that's not that same struggle. They're not those same barriers that exist with the pure spirit versus the soul that is embodied kind of thing. So that's the sense of angelic intelligence. Now angelic will, it, the angelic will differs from our human will by the very nature of its energy. Again, there are not the limits. Um, and flip side of that coin, if you will, when you, come, when you see the angelic become the demonic, that's also what is some of the perks, some of the strengths that the demonic has retained and its ability to influence and the like. So its level of energy, uh, its, inability, its, its ability, um, its tenacity, if you will, to be resolved to do things, to move. The angel is unquestionably free, just like you and I, to accept or to reject. All beings that were created with free will are not robots, and so we choose. You know, for us too, I'm sure, you know, no doubt God sometimes, you know, must think and say, why didn't I, you know, put that little chip in their head that they're always good, they'll always do what they're supposed to, but then we wouldn't be free. And so just like us in our free will, the angels have that same, so they're completely free. But remember, an angel is pure spirit, so it doesn't get caught in the fluctuations, you know, in a sense, our, our fickleness, if you will, the things that the flesh can bog us down in or can frustrate us in. That's not those same kind of ties or weights, if you will, are not placed on, on a pure spirit. Being free with the superior freedom, the angel makes his own self-determination for one purpose or another. But there's also, a, if you will, a price for that. Because he makes this determination with such an absolute strength of will that the decision becomes immediately irrevocable. If you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church when it starts talking about um, the demonic, the fall of the angels, it's interesting, in number 393 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says that Satan, Lucifer, the demons, they made an irrevocable choice. In some ways you kind of say, well, they should have known better on one level because they had, you know, in a sense, the ability to be in God's presence and to share in, you know, in a sense what God was revealing to them and their ability to um, capture not only by way of intellect but by the movement of the will. And so the price they, if you will, the price for, of being a pure spirit is high uh, because again that sense of a decision becomes immediately irrevocable. Moreover, the angel is not if you will, impeccable. Being absolutely free from falling away from grace is a privilege only reserved to the divine. You know, so that's it. We come to the fall of the angels. They become demons. Uh, they can choose other than God. 
they can choose to step away from God. The great battle cry uh, that we, we see re- uh, revealed in our tradition, the, the Latin phrase they use is non serviam, I'm not going to serve. As we come to know through our tradition, through the writings of the fathers of the church, uh, through some of the saints down through the centuries, uh, through, through the study of scripture and the like, is you know, that God revealed God's plan, his ultimate plan, to the angelic beings. And that included, you know, um, you and me. Yeah? And all the complications that go along with a pure spirit that then becomes joined to the physical, a, a body, so it's the soul and, and the, you know, the spirit and the flesh come joined together. Um, and so, you know, what enters into the picture is pride. And we see that exactly with, with Lucifer. Huh? Um, I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to serve this. I'm not going to, you know, there's going to be some other creatures that are going to, you know, be pure spirits that are going to be immortal, but are also going to be enfleshed. And so, again, you know, that the reality of, of free will, of, you know, being able to ponder um, and all that goes along with that. So just like I said, so we're just touching a bit just on angelic intelligence, angelic will. The creation, creation of, of the angels. Um, the clearest evidence that we have, at least as far as the dogma that come down to us through the tradition of the church, is we look at the Fourth Lateran Council, which took place in the 1200s, and in and of which certainly um, Thomas Aquinas himself um, played a part, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, and in the fourth, at the Fourth Lateran Council, it stated that the creation of the angels coincided with that of the creation of the chaotic material. So you go back to the story of Genesis, and you read the, how God was parting things, uh, in a sense. So there was nothing, I mean, in a sense, this void, this great void, God chose to create. God didn't need to create, but out of love, if you will, God wanted to share God's self and to create. Um, and so as part of this, uh, early on in the creation came about the, the creation of, of angelic beings. In the words of the council itself, it said, there was an instantaneous apparition of myriads of angelic spirits forming an immense choir of praise for, eternal, for the eternal God. And so this angelic multitude entered the world, entered creation organized, brought out of nothing into, if you will, a well-arrayed army. Um, And these pure intelligences were distributed into three different spheres or hierarchies, and each of those spheres or hierarchies is divided into three choirs. And so we talk about the nine choirs of angels. So there's three sets of three. Uh, And I mean, how Trinitarian can you be if you look at that? You know, I mean, three, it's not just one set of three, it's three sets of three. Uh, and so I, just to spend a little bit of time talking about then these groupings of angels, these, these nine choirs. Um, the, each of the choirs is distinct primarily um, by, because it has different degrees of, if you will, of likeness to God, of closeness to God. So they participate in different aspects of the divine. You know, because we think, I mean, even for ourselves, you know, we, we start with a finite mind, you know, and regardless of what we say, I mean, all of the theologians that have ever written, you know, it's kind of, they say it's kind of like, you know, the, the drop of water in the, in the pond, in a sense of trying to understand and grapple with who God is. How do we come to know God? Um, you know, sometimes they use the image of a, of a diamond with all its different facets. Every time you look at the diamond, you see a different facet. And, you know, that's the same, you know, in a sense, with just with all of creation. Um, and so the angelic beings then participate in different aspects of God. So I'm going to talk through the, f- the three hierarchies or the three spheres. So the, ser- the first sphere or first hierarchy of angels are, uh, they receive these, those who participate in one of these three choirs in this first sphere receive everything directly from God without mediation. They're perfectly united to God in as closely as, as one can be united to God. Uh, so in a sense of, although you're finite, um, 
you still they, they are as closely connected to the highest degree. So within this first sphere, so now through the three in this first category, there's the seraphim, the cherubim, and the thrones. And actually all nine choirs, um, if, for your own uh, further advance, I mean, all of these names appear throughout the scriptures, uh, both in the Old Testament and in uh, St. Paul does a lot of writing about different, different dimensions of especially the dominions, the thrones, the principalities, and things like that. So the first three of this first sphere, the seraphim, the highest, the highest rank uh, of the angelic realm. Um, the name itself means luminescent, glowing, um, light-giving, uh, and they present represent the perfection of love, which makes sense. That which is the closest to God, see that elsewhere in Scripture. I mean, God has defined God as love, and so that angelic circle, which is closest to God, represents love itself. The second choir, the cherubim, and the name it literally means fullness of knowledge, represents the perfection of, of intelligence, of, of knowing, of, of, of the mind. Uh, the third choir in this first sphere are called the thrones. Uh, and this is not none of the TV series or the, the book series, because I understand there's new, they just started their last series, is it the, is it the Game of Thrones? Um, Different, different group altogether, I'm sorry. Um, but the thrones are so-called because God resides in them with all his glory and with all his majesty. So it makes sense in some ways. You can say like a, a throne, like a seat, um, that God resides in them. And so the thrones, they represent eternity and the immovable steadfastness of the divine being so that God is eternal, God is immovable, God does not change. So that's the first sphere. Second sphere, so the next set of three, this group, they see God face to face and they, uh, they are the sphere dedicated to reflecting God's dominion to um, lower beings, if you will. Because even within the hierarchies, and again, spent a whole evening just talking about the interplay between the choirs of angels, in a sense of how they work, how they interact from uh, higher to lower, you know, up, down, sideways, if you will. Um, so there's all this constant interaction within the choirs of angels themselves, but each is created for a specific role to play. Um, so then the first of this second set are the dominions. Uh, with their absolute serenity, this choir of angels represent the incommunicable supremacy and the inalienable dominion of the Creator all of, in all of his works and over all of his works. So God has dominion um, over all things. Um, the second in this set, uh, the fifth choir, if you will, are the virtues. The virtues, with their penetrating activity, bring the secret, irresistible strength of divine operations. They're kind of, you want to say, the, what, the cogs? Uh, in some ways, uh, that how keeping divine movement, divine operations going and bringing them to, to completion. Um, the sixth choir are the powers. Uh, this particular choir is given to adoring God, but in particular participates in the invincible power of God over the evil spirits. And St. Paul writes uh, about the role of the powers uh, and that they thwart the efforts of the powers of darkness. So in many ways, that's one of the specific roles um, of this sixth choir called the powers. So then we've got the first sphere, the second sphere. So then finally we come to the third sphere. Um, and these, of course, are in a hierarchical model, uh, subordinate to the, to the previous two. But they are, if you will, the front line, um, the, so many of the, of the, of the soldiers so to speak. They're the ones that carry out the, the orders. Um, they execute, you know, that which is handed down from them, or from above. Um, they've been invested with the authority uh, from the second sphere and are strengthened with the flow of power. And so they manage, if you will, the human race and the material world, and yet they never lose sight of God. And so in this last grouping then, there's the three the choirs, seven, eight, and nine. The seventh choir are the principalities. 
And basically the role of principalities um, is that of guardianship over peoples, not individuals, but either nations, groupings of people, those kinds of things. Um, the eighth choir, archangels. Now we're finally getting down to things where most of us have some kind of group and say, okay, yeah, I know what an archangel is. May not have ever seen one, but at least I have heard about the names of a few of them. Um, and so the archangels are employed for very important messages and for events of a high occasion. Of course, three best known are Michael, Gabriel, Raphael. Thank you. That? It was out there somewhere. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and literally, I mean, all of these, I mean, um, are, have very specific roles to play. Um, so let's start with Michael. Uh, Michael is the head of the, the faithful angels. He was the one, and we see that throughout scriptures, we see that especially in the book of Revelation, and I'll quote a passage in just a few moments, uh, he's God's standard bearer. bearer. Um, and the name literally means who is like God. Uh, whenever you see the word, then the last part of the name L E L, it's a reference to God. So we've got Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, and so they're they're tie um, in, in the role that they play. And Saint Gregory the Great writes, every time a marvelous event occurs, Saint Michael's intervention appears. So in a very special way, the role of Saint Michael, Gabriel, name literally means strength of God. Uh, the messenger par excellence, where do we encounter Gabriel most familiar, most often? When, when do you think of Gabriel? Annunciation. Exactly. Yep. I mean, and he plays that, fulfills that role in the Old Testament as well, that there's some kind of inbreaking. And there's a beautiful treatise, um, and I forget which of the, the early fathers wrote it, but I mean, in a sense, of it, it's, it's a wedding, it's kind of, a, if you will, a wedding image where um, Gabriel is the one that leads the divine spouse into the bridal chamber. Uh, and basically it's a whole reflection of Mary becoming pregnant with Jesus. And it's a beautiful image. It goes on and on and on, just talking about how this took place. And it was Gabriel who was at play. Gabriel was at work as the announcer of this and bringing this uh, in, into you know, the role that Gabriel played in all of that. Finally, we come to Raphael. Uh, name literally means medicine of God. Uh, the, most, uh, the place where Raphael gets most of his play is the book of Tobit. And, uh, and he's not only associated with healing, and that tends to be the focus, a lot of people for, for healing and for some for traveling, for those who travel, but also for purity and for chaste unions. So in a very special way uh, for, you know, for spouses, for um, husband and wife uh, for unions. So those are your, the, the, the nine choirs. Um, and so in general, the ministry of angels pertains to watching over individuals, um, you know, in this, oh, I'm sorry, so that's, I'm skipping ahead, so that's Raphael. So those are your block of archangels, so that's the eighth choir. We finally come to the ninth choir, which are the angels themselves. And the ministry of angels pertains to watching over individuals entering the life of each person intimately. Um, and of course, what we know best is this, the notion, or not the notion, our, our understanding, our belief um, in the reality of a guardian angel. So that a guardian angel is given over to, to watch us, to care for us. Um, St. Basil the Great, uh, who died in the year 379, writes, each and every member of the faithful has a guardian angel to protect, guard, and guide them through life. So it's this constant companion. And you know, no doubt you're familiar with the, you know, the famous prayer of you know, angel of God, my guardian dear, um, very much um, all of that. So that's angels. Book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses seven through nine. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and its angels fought back but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and its angels were thrown down with it. So we're talking about the fall of the angels. And it's a tradition that not long 
after their creation, this rift took place in a sense of those, all of which had free will, those who chose to remain faithful, led by Michael, and Lucifer, who at least tradition tells us was the highest, the brightest of the angels. Lucifer itself literally means light bearer, um, and yet led the, led the revolt. Um, St. Augustine writes, two loves made two cities. One Jerusalem, love for God unto denial of self, and the other Babylon, love for self unto denial of God. So um, if you will put it another way, the, the faithful angels had loved God to the point of self-denial to serve while the re rebel angels loved themselves to the point of despising God. St. Augustine goes on to describe the consequences of the choice made by the angels. The first, kneeling before the word, became light. The second, dwelling on their own selves, became night. So it's just simple images of the choice, light and darkness, service and rebellion, fidelity and infidelity. Huh? And as I already, taught, already mentioned, you know, the light and darkness cannot subsist together. And so it became an irrevocable dis, uh, division, the, the split. Uh, and so the good obedient ones were immediately inducted into the highest heaven where God can be seen. The evil ones were instead sent swiftly headlong into the abyss of hell. The definitive action of God is in some ways, um, I would say what maybe, uh, well, not only humbling, but kind of dumbfounding in a sense, because we always think of God and sometimes maybe I don't know when you say too much, but we always think of, you know, well, God is love and, and, God, and God is forgiveness and, and God is all that, no doubt, but God is also just, all, you know, in the sense that the notion of, of, of justice. And this instant with the, with the angelic beings and those who chose not to serve and the fall, it proves that God owes the sinner nothing but justice. He is not obliged to give any one time for penance or pardon. If God deigns to grant that to us, it's only done out of pure free goodness. They acted, they chose either to serve or not to serve, and so God acted in justice. And so there are three moments in the history of the angels. The first moment is that of their creation and of their praised-filled jubilation. The second, when gaining self-control, they freely made their definitive choice. And the third, which marked their eternal recompense or eternal retribution. So when I first started talking about the angels, I said if you look kind of as a concise understanding in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you look at Numbers 328 to 336. Now for the, uh, the fall of the angels and uh, the devil and all, you look at Numbers 391 to 395. In lots of ways, if you will, the, uh, the demonic, uh, the demons operate a lot like angels. I mean, they were angels once upon a time. Um, but due to their sin, due to their choice, they are absolutely and irrevocably excluded from the order of grace. You and I, even in our sinfulness, are always surrounded by God's grace. Yeah, God does not stop. I mean, it's always the image. A few Sundays ago, we had the the gospel of the you know of the of the prodigal son. I mean, it's one of the most classic images of of the uh, the overwhelming love of God. It's not conditional. You know, we see that in the Father in that story. He doesn't stand at bay. He doesn't, and we're extremely powerful. You know, it's not you know the dad staying up in his room and saying you know the servants come and say, well your kid's back. You know, the one that took the money and ran wasted it all and now he wants to get back into the household you know and it's the father saying oh he made his choice sorry uh, um, even he didn't come down just to the door you know and say well let him crawl up the stairs let him grovel for a while but as the, the story tells us I mean he runs out to meet him while he I think the passage that fray or the line starts while he was still a ways off to that effect he runs out to meet him and so, you know, the beauty, the, 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 the love um, of God, it's just, it's overwhelming. Um, 
So just some nuts and bolts generally um, as far as uh, the demons, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, all the names you want to assign. So, uh, and not to, to um, keep repeating and repeating and repeating, we know he's a creature created good by God who chose not to serve. Three components of the evil one. He had a beginning that was good, but he chose not to serve. And so that's key, the beginning. But he has limitations. <clears throat> How do we know that? One of the prime examples, if you go back to the first Sunday of Lent, uh, every first Sunday of Lent, we always have one of the versions of the temptations of Jesus. Uh, uh, depending upon what cycle we're in, it's either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This past year, uh, was it, uh, on the first Sunday of Lent, was Luke. And go back and reflect on the statements that the tempter, how he words the phrases or the questions or his attempts to tempt Jesus. He doesn't make definitive statements. He begins all of them by saying, if. If you are the Son of God, you're hungry. Here's some rocks. Make them bread. Do a little trick for me. If you are the Son of God, takes him up to the parapet of the temple, throw yourself off. Certainly the angels will catch you. If proof that the demonic does not have full knowledge. He's limited. Proof that he's a creature. Despite all his bluffs, despite all of his, all of his uh, prattle, um, he's a creature. Uh, he has free will. Obviously, we know that. He started good. He ended up a demon. St. Augustine, uh, I, it would, it's a credit to the St. Augustine. I always give St. Augustine the credit because I love the image. And it may not be St. Augustine, but he always says that the dog is on a leash. Uh, um, and you know the, the bit with the dog. He's on a leash, so he can run, but he can only run so far. So you stay outside of the length of the leash, no problems, right? Don't get bit. So, okay, you move up to the, the circle of the leash. Well, there's the chance you might get nipped if you're within the reach of the chain. And of course, if you step inside, all bets are off. All of this, Augustine or whoever's the, the responsible for the, for the, for the image, um, is that there are limits. The evil one has limitations because oftentimes we see in, in discussions, and that goes all the way back to the beginning in the sense of having these, this duality. You know, we've got the good God and we've got the bad God. Huh? It, it's, not, it's, it's incompatible uh, because there are not two gods. There's only one God. The creature has limitations. So up to this point, he sounds pretty human. But as I already mentioned with the whole discussion of the angels, he's pure spirit. So there's perks, if you will, that go along with that. And, of course, we referenced in 393 of the Catechism, he made an irrevocable choice. And that's what fuels, at least one of the things, but one of the primary things that fuels his anger, fuels his hatred. Because we who, at least the Psalms tell us, are less than the angels, this fleshy stuff, this spirit, soul, and this flesh are able to fall again and again and again, but through the help of God's grace can pick ourselves up. And if we die in God's good grace, we can walk right into paradise, which Lucifer and his com companions no longer can. We can have heaven, he can't. Um, just some basic things as far as what, and again, a lot of misnomers. Uh, if, you, you know, if you go on to the internet, even different variety of books and stuff like that, there's so many. For whatever reason, people want to make the evil one and the demons so much powerful, more powerful than they are. They got their talents. 
they've got their tricks, they've got, if you will, the abilities, the preternatural gifts that they retained or were able to retain after the fall, but again, they have limitations. But there are those, there are people who believe that, you know, an evil spirit, uh, a demon can just simply infest somebody, can just kind of move in and set up shop, possess somebody. Not true. There's got to be a doorway. There's got to be an opening. Um, second, um, he's not responsible for all sin in the world, all that is evil. Uh, and, you know, the, and again, there's lots of, of thoughts along those lines. But play, you know, in the line, play the, play the tape to the end. If the evil one, if the devil, Lucifer, demons, whomever, if they're responsible for all that is evil, I don't have to be responsible for anything. You know, where, do, where does the responsibility come, you know, in a sense? I have to take responsibility, you know? I make choices. I choose to do something or not do something. I may be tempted, I may be giving in to my own weaknesses, whatever the case may be. Huh? But the evil one is not responsible for all that is evil in the world. Um, he cannot read our minds. Again, too, it's amazing folks think, well, I mean, evil can do all of that. that. Only God has the privilege. Only the Creator has the privilege. Uh, again, always keeping that in perspective. You've got the divine, you've got God, the one God, you've got a creature, a fellow creature, so to speak. Um, he's not responsible for all the illnesses, all the diseases in the world. Um, so literally, that's 45 minutes. Wow. Um, it's a lot. Uh, again, you know, it's kind of like, you know, see, uh, I'm going to take something to drink. Questions? Anything? <coughs> Try to keep it to angels and demons, but... I have a couple questions. That's it? <laughs> oh, sure. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned at the end that uh, the devil can't read our mind. Um, how, do, how do angels and demons suggest or influence make suggestions to us or influence our behavior? I mean, God influences us through grace. Um, the demonic, um, and I think the angelic, well, because, I mean, we've got the, an angel guardian. I mean, that is, that is by way of companion. But as far as the demonic learns by observing. Uh, at least that's one of the, the classic understandings of how the demonic works because he doesn't, again, you can't, I mean, you know, some may you know, claim they have the gift of being psychic to be able to read somebody else's mind, but that's not, you know, a, a, one creature cannot do that to another creature. And um, so, but for the demonic, they're masterful, got a lot of time on his hands, so to speak, and just watches our patterns. You know, if I do X and Y, and Z is a sin, if you will, you know, how can that be manipulated, you know, to put me in the path of X and Y? Uh, you know, in a sense, so knowing our Achilles heels, so to speak, you know, watching how we act, where we go, what we do, how can that be massaged, so to speak, to bring us into? And so it's the watching of. Uh, I mean, but I mean, in the sense of any true inspirations and promptings, um, that comes to us from God. Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as the, the towards the good, that God's the activity of God's grace. But can the evil one sort of whisper in our ear, like when a thought comes to your head or something? Or it's it's a fine line. I mean, in the sense of how much influence, you know, I mean, how the evil one manipulates and is able to, you know, to work. Uh, kind of the old image. You know, oftentimes we've depicted with the angel on one shoulder and the and and the demon on the other. Um, but again, too, it'd be interesting. Even you look at there. I think there are different schools of thought. Huh? Um, so I mean, even even Augustine's writings, the writings of Thomas Aquinas. Um, I don't know if it's Bonaventure. I mean, in a sense of how how the influence, but it's not with the kind of direct <coughs> interaction that we think it is. Um, I mean, it's more. I mean, again, it's always. I mean, along the lines of the prompting of of, of God's grace. Yeah. 
because obviously they don't have bodies like we do, so they don't speak the way that we do, but they uh, clearly have a voice because usually by speaking we have a choice. Would you say it's more an awareness of their spiritual voice than an actual intrusion into our minds? Like, because we are both body and soul, we are able to hear things spiritually, just like we hear, like, God's voice, this yep. type of thing. He's not intruding into our minds. We are actually just reacting to his divine mm-hmm. voice. Yeah. And it's yeah. still an external thing? Would you say <coughs> kind of yeah. similar? I mean, but again, it's always certainly would be to, it would be to a different degree, by all means, than, than the divine itself. I mean, how in a sense, how, how the creator has the privilege of coming to the creature. Um, is a completely different prerogative and, and movement than a fellow creature, um, but yet, I mean, given the role, depending, I mean, as, as guardian angel um, or something malevolent, to you know, so how we hear that on a, on a spiritual plane. Certainly, there. Certainly, like I said, I'm not to say that there's not that influence. Don't get me wrong, but it's there's so many. There's a lot of nuance to it. Um, so, but yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, if, if I'm not mistaken, but um, in the target land, they said that um, demons are not going to like possess the um, like ourselves just because we like here. But then, unless there is an opening, correct. What kind of opening is that? It can be any number of things. Um, uh, I mean, I've kind of got a, kind of like a, a mental list of them in the sense that they may see f- more frequently than others. Uh, the first and probably the most obvious is sin. You know, so in a sense, um, you know, we, we know as, as Christians, especially as Catholics, I mean, we fall into sin. We, we commit a sin that in some way uh, distorts or offends God and hurts our relationship with God, depending upon the degree or the, the intensity of the sin. If it's a, if it's a lesser sin, a, a venial sin, as opposed to a mortal sin, you know, one you know, breaks the relationship to a degree, one completely breaks, severs the relationship. Then, but that's remedied through um, the sacrament of reconciliation. You know, we, we heal through the through the grace of the sacrament. But what happens if I mean I don't respond to grace? I mean, so certainly then sin can become uh, uh, fertile soil, if you will, for in a sense to continue to break down, uh, because the evil one, the devil, Lucifer. I mean, he in his mind wants to set up that ulterior kingdom. You know, in a sense, what God has, the evil one wants to have, in a sense. And so how he can draw us into that is by being in relationship. Uh, God, I mean, you know, you know, God does not force us into relationship. God longs to be into relationship with us. I mean, he doesn't, like I tell people, he doesn't back us into a corner and say, you know, you're going to believe in me. You know, I mean, it's that free will. That's what free will is all, it always comes back to that. Um, but so the evil one has to look for those doorways. So the first, as I mentioned, is is you know some kind of sinful nat- sinful action, uh, where I mean that continues to devolve if within myself my relationship with God, and I'm starting to focus on the darkness. Uh, the second, um, in which a lot of I mean many more folks are becoming involved in than I would say in the past is occult practices, you know things that are clearly. You know, I mean, in the sense of everything from, you know, New Age stuff to um, cleansings to psychics to um, even things like Ouija board, all those different kinds of things. Because at the end of the day, whatever you want to name, you want to give all of those things, it's a form of idolatry. I'm placing something else in the place where God should be. You know, I'm looking to find answers, for instance, or I'm going, you know, for healing, or I'm going for some other source, to some source other than God. So the whole world of occult activity. Um, trauma and abuse can be, you know, all of these, like I said, are these guarantees that's, that the demonic is going to um, be able to establish a relationship? No, but does it, if you will, uh, uh, prepare the soil, you know, for something for this relationship to begin with the evil one. So, I mean, in a sense, something something traumatic happens to the person, or somebody experiences, or undergoes abuse, any range of abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, whatever the case may be. In either of these circumstances, the degree, the severity of it, you know, in a sense, 
wounds the person, the more severe the attack, the experience, the more deeply the person is wounded. The evil one, the darkness, loves to live in the woundedness. Huh? Because if I'm not... Um, if I'm not healing myself, if I'm because normally you hope that the normal course is for a person to, you know, go get into counseling, to get into therapy, get get into spiritual direction, to get into all kinds of things that bring healing. You know, there's no eraser for any for all the whole host of abuses, but hopefully the person is able to at least bring <coughs> healing into that and move forward. But what happens if the person cannot? You know, so there can be a whole host of negative emotions that surround the person in that state. Anger, resentment, rage, retaliation, bitterness, hatred, rancor, all those different kinds of things. That's exactly where the darkness wants a person to be because it's deadening. It's, it's not life-giving to the soul. Um, other things, I mean, lies. You know, there are, in some people, for some people or in some people's lives, uh, they embrace some deep-seated lie, usually about themselves. Uh, simple example, if you will. You know, a child from little on is told, you're no good, you're never going to be any good, you're never going to amount to anything. And when that is taken in, and when the person lives with that, and lives, and that's constantly being reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed, you know, they sh their whole life can be shaped by that lie. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, they are good. They're, they're created naturally good by God. They have a purpose, whatever that purpose may be. Um, but they live out of the lie instead of out of the truth. And that can be deadening. So there's a whole variety of doorways. Uh, because the evil one, like I, I said, you know, one of his m the misconceptions is that the evil one can just simply just set his sights on somebody and say, I'm going to, you know, afflict you. I'm going to um, you know, oppress you or obsess you. I'm going to possess you. Uh, um, but in a sense, we're made for God. God continually is surrounding us by grace, all of the helps we need. But it's when we open ourselves to something else that is not of God, then there's the possibility of that entering in. Does that help a bit? It's a long answer to a short question, yeah. but I mean, but it's it's not, it's not easy to be able to give a real quick answer to that. Yeah, um, I have one more question. Yeah. Um, so then, um, you said that um, humans or as Lucifer is not responsible for all the bad deeds that we do, mm -hmm. and we are responsible for what we do. And then also now you said that through what we experience or else what we do. He makes the bed, um, or else I say. So, does that mean that the bed starts within us, like maybe as a thought, something like that, within us, which is what he takes in and enhances, so that we keep on going into that direction? Is that what happens there? You have to keep a, a careful balance between the fact of what is just simple human sinfulness. Because even if you go back, when I was talking earlier about the, the gospel for the first Sunday of Lent, even how the Lord himself was tempted, he was tempted to the flesh, to the world, and to the devil himself. And so the fact of the matter is, because of the fall of our first parents, we're born into original sin. And, of course, baptism removes original sin, but there's still, we are living in a, a corrupted, if you will, a fallen world. And so we're prone to sin. That's kind of, if you will, our Achilles heel. Um, that's, I mean, so we, and, and we given free will, you know, God is supplying grace to help us to choose the right to choose him, but there are times when we choose contrary to God, and that's just simply from our own human sinfulness. Now there are other instances where the devil himself directly engages, and that's when I talk about the doorways. So we have to keep a balance, you know, in a sense where there are things that I do that place myself in sin, my choices, for whatever the reason. Just like Lucifer himself saying, I'm not going to serve this plan, and becomes, you know, and became demonic. Um, because in a sense, like I said, you know, there's the tendency to want to blame the devil for everything. You know, and that's, it's like, you know, you think, they, people think it's a get out of jail free card. 
you know, because then I can say, well, everything bad I do, it's the devil, and I, had no, I don't have to take any responsibility for myself. So you have to, to, to walk that, that balance. So there are times when it's, it's our own human sinfulness because of our fallen nature that we make choices for the good, for the bad. Uh, there are other instances where through whatever circumstances and even God himself allowing it, which God would have to because God is God, uh, um, that the evil one himself engages us. Uh, and so, I don't know, does that help? Yeah. I mean, because it's it's always. I mean, it's one or the other. I mean, it, you know, it can be. It certainly can be both and. You know, in a sense where we've opened the doorway to something we we've started in something that is sinful, and it leads us to a direct encounter with the evil one. Of course, the evil one is always at play. This is his. This is his arena. This is his world. Um, but we also. I mean, the fundamental truth is that we have God's grace. God's grace is always at work. Grace builds on nature. And is trying to always lift us up in that, but again, the the you know blaming the devil can become a crutch, uh, rather than taking responsibility for what is my own. You know, just like we say, people, you know, a lot of folks blame nowadays lots of different things. If I had a better family, you know, I'd have turned out better. If I had better teachers, you know, if we had a better mayor or a better governor, but whatever. I mean, it's so easy to place the blame, but that's as old as the fall itself. Go back to Genesis. You know, there's the go on. You know, just a piece of fruit. Go on, eat it. What? Die? You're not going to die. You're going to become like God. And of course, Adam and Eve owned right up to it, right? You know, that's not how the story goes. You know, they in the cool twilight, God comes walking through the garden. They're hiding. You know, when finally Adam and Eve finally come out. You know, I mean, admit that they ate from the tree, um, but you know, it's somebody else was to blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. You know, right from the get-go, in a sense, there's that not taking responsibility for what is my own. That's part of sin. Uh, and so, so, but again, it's always keeping the balance between what is human sinfulness and what is the actual engagement, if you will, of the evil one. One more question. Given that there is some doorway open to our soul for us to be influenced, can objects, you know, seemingly uh, innocent things by modern standards, um, can can objects act as a kind of avenue, um, a more direct avenue, in being able to? influence our souls um, by by demons, let's say. It's uh, something, I don't know, um, how some people will hang uh, dream catchers in mm -hmm. their rooms or the image of like the elephant with its trunk up. Mm -hmm. um, certainly things can be set, I mean, can be used just like we bless things, things can be cursed. Uh, things can be used for with negative purpose. Um, you know, in a sense, Again, it's always you know looking at what is their, the source, uh, what is their purpose, why you know why do they exist? Um, you know, there's always the challenge of of using things and having things that you know are not of our Christian tradition. You know, in a sense, it's you know, and I think too that's the challenge of in one ways of the modern modern times. Everything is kind of it's everything has become very syncretistic. If you will, there's, I mean, you know, everything is just kind of blended together. And to say, well, you know, these things can be problematic uh, because they reflect something other than our Christian tradition, you know, or that draws us to Christ. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, things can be used uh, by the darkness, I mean, or pe by people with malintent, you know, to bring darkness into people's lives, objects that have been you know, have been cursed or for, for a specific purpose. So, I mean, you have to look at things by their nature. What are they? A dream catcher. I mean, it's something that comes from, you know, Native American, I believe, right? Native American tradition. Um, and the elephant one I'm not familiar with. Um, but, I mean, it comes from a very, another tradition, you know, so, I mean, in a sense, do you, how do you honor and respect that in and of itself, um, knowing that it's not <coughs> part of our tradition? 
as opposed to then those things that are specifically used for a purpose to bring darkness into a person's life. You know, where, I mean, people will take things to somebody who is a practitioner of magic um, and give something to somebody that has a, a malefice on it, a curse on it. And, you know, again, how, you know, the, the extent and the degree of, of how those things work, you know, I mean, in a sense, at the end of the day, God is in charge. Uh, and, you know, so some of these things, it's where they're placed. What's the condition of the person that receives them? Um, you know, so, I mean, if a person is doing their best, I'm not saying perfect, doing their best to live the life of grace, you know, for the Catholic, uh, receiving the sacraments, going to Mass, trying to pray, reading scripture, having devotion, doing good works, whatever, in many ways they're, if you will, untouchable by, by the darkness. I firmly believe a lot of folks brush up against the darkness and they don't even know it because they're not oriented towards it. They're focused on the light. Uh, uh, but in a sense, when a person is not focused, is disoriented, if you will, there's a chink in the armor, if you will, a creep, you know, that there's some kind of opening, uh, the darkness is able to enter in more easily. So, again, it's always a matter, because I always, I mean, in any conversation, it's always a matter of bringing, just like we started tonight, always bring the person back to Jesus Christ. Because if Christ is in one center of one's life, uh, or trying to keep it as a center of one's life, you don't have a whole lot to worry about. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but the abundance of God's grace and the person trying to live a grace-filled, a holy life um, the darkness, again, it, it, you're dealing with the creature, you know? And so he knows who's won the, the war. May try to push a little bit, but not so much influence. Thank you. Well, please join me in thanking Father Jeff for his time.